So our next speaker is Dr. Jeriso. He is a professor, a former and founding chair of the Dermatology Department of Wake Forest University and an adjunct professor of dermatology at the Cornell um, School of Medicine. He received his undergraduate medical degrees from Boston University six-year ABMD program and completed his internship in internal medicine and residency and chief residency in dermatology at North Carolina Memorial Hospital. He was a fellow at St. John's Hospital Dermatology Institute in London. Dr. Jeriso has been on a myriad of councils and committees and advisory boards. Um, he's also participated on the editorial boards of major dermatology journals, some of which you will recognize, including um, the Archives of Dermatology, the Journal of American Academy of Dermatology, the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venerology, among others. He is a member of many professional um, dermatology groups, including the American Dermatologic Association, um, Society of Investive, Investigative Dermatology, Dermatology Foundation, Women's Dermatology Association, and the American Academy of Dermatology, where he served as vice president. He's also co-authored several books, including um, Dermatological Signs of Internal Disease, and also, um, let's see, he's authored other um, over 200 articles and abstracts. It's uh, my pleasure to introduce and welcome Dr. Teresa. Well, thank you very much. Um, first of all, I want to say that it's, it's a real honor to be invited back uh, to speak to your group. I absolutely love um, that because uh, what's happened in a lot of uh, sessions is over the 36 years that I've been in dermatology, the part of dermatology that I do, which is complex medical dermatology, has become a little bit less mainstream. There's a lot more passion. I think, um, you know, David, previous to me, kind of alluded to that. There's a lot less passion for those sorts of topics um, than there is about some of the things that are more cutting edge in terms of the cosmetic arena or dermatologic surgical oncology. Um, but the thing that I think, so, so I love the fact that when I speak to your group, there's a, there's a large audience. You know, I, I really, when people are talking about the academy meeting, um, one of my heroes in dermatology is a guy uh, Sam Michella, who's almost 90 and is a professor at Harvard, and he's really a role model for me. He's, a, he's an unbelievable clinician and a super person. And um, I saw him at the last Academy meeting, and he was almost tearful because he gives a session on leprosy at the annual meeting, and I think only three people signed up. And uh, so uh, while you're getting, those of you that do go that are having trouble getting into some of the cutting edge things, Go see Sam, you know, he would love that. Now, in terms of, um, in terms of um, talking about this topic, you know, there was a guy named Dick Dobson who was, a, was the founding editor of the Blue Journal, and he um, was um, chair, founding chair at um, MUSC in Charleston uh, after being chair at, at the um, University at, at Buffalo, State University of New York at Buffalo in dermatology. And what he would do is he ran a meeting uh, every year in which he would assign the speakers topics. And the great thing about that is people get out of your rut of talking about the same thing with slides that might not be identical, but they're kind of similar. Um, and, and your group does the same thing. So the first couple times I spoke, it was on complex medical derm, on rheumatologic derm, and autoimmune bullous diseases, and reactive dermatoses like vasculitis and stuff like that that I talk about all the time. And then um, at the meeting in Arizona, I was asked to speak about ethics, which is something I actually kind of look down on a little bit. I love ethics, ethical people, but 
and I would like to aspire to be one, but, but I also, I always felt that if you speak too much about ethics, it kind of maybe you're one of those people who's got something to hide ethically, you know, it's kind of like the televangelist kind of thing, um, or the former governor, you know, of New York. Um, Elliot Spitzer was going to stamp out prostitution so aggressively that he ended up getting caught doing it. Um, but um, this time I was asked to speak about medical mycology, and it's not something I've spoken about forever, but it's something that I'm kind of interested in. You know, when I was a resident at University of North Carolina, North Carolina Memorial Hospital was the old name for, for UNC hospitals, um, we had to do something that was difficult for people in Chapel Hill. We had to go eight miles down the road and take a summer mycology course at Duke. And there was a whole big, thick textbook called the Ripon Book, and we had a laboratory component. It was an all-day thing for like uh, three or four weeks. And so there was a deep commitment to mycology. And you know, in those days, there was not much dermatologic surgery. There certainly wasn't cosmetic dermatology. Um, this was in the mid-70s, and, and dermatologists all have these labs, and they culture stuff, and so the board exam was very heavy <clears throat> on uh, identifying cultures, both grossly and microscopically. Well, believe me, I'm not going to hit you with that today, um, but it really got me um, uh, feeling a little bit comfortable with something that's kind of a difficult topic, all those funny names, and also it... Um, it got me intrigued by the interaction between the immune systems, specifically cellular immunity, and these organisms that either live in the outer layers of the skin for the, the most common um, dermatomycosis we're going to talk about, or occur in situations in which there might be compromise of cellular immunity. So what I'm going to try to do is show you some of the standard pictures and give you some of the standard tables actually from our book. And, uh, the book that wasn't mentioned is the, the important book, is the one that I'm like a little tag along to the famous great Jean Bologna, uh, who is just absolutely awesome and really is the driving force behind that book, which is going to come out again for a third edition uh, next year, late, late next year. So she let, let me tag along with that, and um, most of the illustrations and tables are from that textbook. Let's see if I'm... Advancing this correctly. Okay. Oh, one other thing. I don't, have a, I don't have a conflict of interest slide here, and I should. There are no relevant conflicts, but the three, um, there are three companies with which I serve only on an advisory board. One is Amgen, one is Leo, and the other is um, uh, Warner Chilcott. So if you look at the different kinds of uh, ways that fungal organisms can affect the skin and present to you in your dermatologic practice, one would be in the setting of, a, of superficial um, infections. And the interesting thing about this is you have these organisms living in the stratum corneum. And when they're living there, they create inflammation in the outer layers of the skin. And that inflammation causes edema within and around epidermal cells. Well, all of you know that you know, when you're looking at dermatologic patients, you try to look and see what you're seeing on the clinical exam and then imagine in your mind what things would look like under the microscope. And so you try to classify inflammatory and proliferative diseases as to whether there's primarily an epidermal component or a dermal component where the lesions look more like orange peels or where there's a deeper component affecting the subcutaneous fat where the lesions have a bruise-like appearance. So one of the interesting things is that when you have edema within and around epidermal cells, it's called spongiosis. And spongiosis is the hallmark 
of eczematous eruptions. And it's also seen in other superficial inflammatory diseases like psoriasis. So the most common things that you would see, supposedly 10% of chief complaints to primary care physicians are dermatologic. And <clears throat> out of those 10%, supposedly 60% are classified as eczematous eruptions. And so um, you can see that if you have a patient that you think has an eczematous eruption, and you give the patient a corticosteroid, a corticosteroid topically, which is the most commonly prescribed dermatologic topical, has the effect of, of affecting the immune system, including the cellular immune system. And so it can actually create a situation where if you miss the fact that the reason these patients have spongiosis is because there's an organism sitting in the stratum corneum, you could actually be in a situation where you make the, the condition worse. Or maybe even if it's not so much worse, it's more difficult to diagnose because you're getting rid of the inflammatory component, allowing the fungus to kind of proliferate without sort of an immune response to it. So, um, you know, it's, it's one of the classics in dermatology is when you see an eczematous eruption and it's not getting better, you have to ask yourself at least five questions, possibly more, but is it really an eczematous eruption or is it a fungus? Is it really an eczematous process or is it a, a proliferative thing like cutaneous T-cell lymphoma? Is it really an eczematous process or is it psoriasis? Or is it an eczematous process that has an allergic contact dermatitis component? And then the fifth one, is it an eczematous process that has a neurodermatitis component? And those are the reasons it's not getting better. So these superficial ones are the ones that are really important for dermatology and um, are, are um, the common things that you're going to see in terms of this category. Uh, the other two uh, are less common, but they're things that we're talking about more and more. You know, as we use more and more therapies for complex medical dermatology problems that affect cellular immunity, you have the potential to activate latent infections that are being walled off somewhere in the body. So there's more discussion about histoplasmosis, for example, in the Ohio River Valley or coccidioidomycosis, you know, out in the San Joaquin Valley than maybe there, there were there wasn't our specialty. It's kind of like one of the bad things that happens with package inserts, right? When the TNFL agents sort of mention about screening for those things, it sort of comes up more in discussion. Like I see a lot of patients with complex medical dermatology problems, and so I tell the residents, even though I see a lot of patients with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, I like the fact that I don't have to talk about diarrhea that much. And then along comes the uh, warning on, on isotretinoin and on the topical antibiotics, and now we have to talk about diarrhea in our specialty. So it's sort of one of those, one of those kind of things. So the systemic uh, deep, my, deep mycoses are something we have to think about again a little bit more than we did maybe 20 years ago. And then for those of you that are involved in that side of dermatology that really is diminishing, which is inpatient dermatology. Uh, by the way, is there anyone who does do that? Uh, just raise hands. Anyone who does consults in hospital setting? A few. Uh, one of the things that we see every day, you know, in the days before DRGs, which were the, the, the criteria that allowed patients to be screened for admitting admission to the hospital, back in the days, uh, prehistoric times when I was a resident, Patients were admitted for workups for connective tissue diseases and for other autoimmune problems, and so you would really see a range of consults in a hospital setting. Now a lot of patients that we see are patients who are having bone marrow transplants or have cancers or leukemias who have these opportunistic infections, patients who are immunosuppressed in some way. And um, 
And so increasingly we're asked to comment on what this necrotizing spot might be and, um, and, and evaluate the patient. So we really do see and deal with all three of these categories. So now if you look at the superficial mycoses uh, of the skin, um, rather than using it the way this table does it, what I would really prefer to think about is a situation where um, you, you kind of try to understand what the immune response would be depending on how, how these different organisms have evolved. So that sounds very complicated, but it's really very simple. If you're talking about dermatophytes, there are three main kinds of dermatophytes. There are dermatophytes uh, that, that have evolved to be anthropophilic. That means they're, they're evolved as a human parasite. Well, the way you evolve to become a human parasite is you evolve to have essentially no immune response uh, when you're present. You're kind of tagging along, sitting there on the surface with almost no reaction, just maybe some powdery scale or something like that. But you can imagine if, on the other hand, you get into a fungal infection that comes from um, a geophilic organism, which is an organism that normally just lives in the soil, or a zoophilic organism, which is an organism that lives normally on a dog or a cat, when that gets on your skin, you're going to have a really brisk inflammatory response, and it's going to look extremely different. And so I think that's the way I like to think of these organisms. How close are they to... Uh, to us, to being evolved as, as parasites for us. So the next thing we're going to talk about is uh, pityriasis versicolor, which used to be called tinea versicolor. Now, the, the interesting thing about this, this particular clinical problem is that this is not an infection. And patients tend to think that it is. Actually, what they tend to think of most of the time is that they're just having a problem with tanning if they have skin my color and lighter. They tend to wonder why they get these patches that don't tan evenly in the spring and summer. And you can get into a whole discussion about tanning, but with younger people, that's their focus. They want to look good in their, in their bathing suit, and, uh, and this is an inhibitor to that. We know now that this organism, which cannot be cultured on routine culture media, this is an organism that can only be cultured experimentally by putting um, different oils on top of uh, an enriched medium like Sabarod's agar but that this organism is present on almost everyone's skin, and it lives in the, it's an organism that likes to live in the sebaceous glands, and so it's very um, prevalent on the, on the trunk where the sebaceous glands are bigger, and it's very unusual in locations like the back of the hand where people don't tend to have a lot of uh, sebaceous gland enlargement. All right, I'm clearly pushing the wrong button. Maybe somebody in the back is helping me <laughs> just say next. Okay, so, um, I think the first picture from um, the Bologna book is, is not at all a typical presentation, whereas the other one is. This organism uh, can produce three kinds of patches. It can produce darker patches because the skin is so busy being inflamed that the pigment drops down from the spongiosis that's induced and is phagocytized by, okay, I keep pushing them. I'll try it again though, <laughs> thanks. Uh, do I point it towards a special place? Maybe that's not where I'm supposed to point it. Do I point it? All right. Fine. <laughs> Whatever. It's the most simple things my kids tell me that uh, become the most complex for me as I'm getting older. <laughs> All right. So the other way it can present is as a red patch because it really does actually induce some um, inflammation, especially in occluded sites. 
So, you know, when your arm is hanging down, and those patches might be a little more likely to be inflamed and red. But this organism also produces a really interesting molecule that all of you have heard of. It's called azelaic acid. And it turns out that azelaic acid not only is a product of this yeast, but it's also a chemical that's been used to treat rosacea. The product finacea is azelaic acid. And it also has kind of a toxic effect on melanocytes. And people thought at one time it might even have a place in treating melanoma. It, it doesn't. But I mean, at one time people thought that. But you know, some of your, your uh, you may have encountered the issue that if somebody has a little bit of hyperpigmentation and rosacea, that, that's a, that you know, azelaic acid might have some role. So that, that's what's uh, believed to be account, to account for the white patches. And one of the things that's interesting in dermatology is we understand a lot of science. We don't understand why you know, this patch came out this way. And, that way. and so patients have light ones and dark ones and, and red ones sometimes all mixed together in the same patient. The way to make this diagnosis is to think about it, think of it, and then you can almost take your finger and just rub the patch and it kind of powders up with this uh, powdery scale. Okay, now, hey, worked. Uh, so um, let's talk before we go on to dermatophytes about, um, about tinea versicolor treatment. One of the things that I love most about our specialty is that in uh, the Bologna textbook, there are probably over 300 or 350 diagnoses that you could see in the course of a busy year if you did um, medical and pediatric and uh, surgical oncology and cosmetic dermatology. Well, um, we have probably 10 or 12 diseases that are common enough to be economically viable enough for companies to invest in doing class in, in doing um, evidence-based medicine research that's multi-center, placebo-controlled, and double-blinded. So that's the kind of evidence-based support you want for treatment in medicine. Somebody mentioned working in cardiology before. They have 15 relatively common diseases. If you have a drug for one of those indications, you have um, uh, potential to have a $10 billion drug just in U.S. sales alone. So there's tons of multicenter placebo-controlled double-blind studies. In dermatology, you know, once you get beyond uh, toenail fungus, psoriasis, eczema, and some of that stuff, companies aren't willing to make the investment of the couple hundred million dollars to get a drug through the FDA. And so as a result, if you have lichen planus or some other conditions, you're not going to get the same level of evidence-based support. So we're kind of forced to function with less than evidence-based support. So, uh, medications that have activity against this yeast are not medications that are tested for this indication. They're usually approved for either yeast infections or they're approved, for, you know, candidiasis or they're appro approved for dermatophyte infections, which are more common. So you're kind of stuck flying a little bit by the seat of your pants. Um, one of the main principles, though, to understand is that your patient believes that what you tell them the first visit is patient education, what you tell them the second visit is an excuse. So what they care about is the discoloration. They're focused on the whole bathing suit thing. And there's no way that that dispigmentation is going to even out in a week or two. And so what you're going to really, and then the other thing you've got to show them is that people really believe that on the first follow-up visit or whatever interval their refill comes up, they should be cured. And so doctors don't actually cure many things. I mean, we cure some things we cut out and things we cure with antibiotics that are infections for two weeks. But 
This is, a, is an ongoing problem. It becomes, it's related, this organism proliferate, proliferates and grows these little cultures on human skin, mostly when you have the right skin lipids and you live in a humid environment. So um, as you age, you don't tend to see this problem as often. It's not a problem that's real common in people you know, my age that are going to be uh, 60 this year. So um, you, you, uh, you have to deal with it mostly in younger people. Younger people are impatient. They care about the discoloration. So what you got to do is get two messages across on that first visit. Number one, the color is going to take a while, but the organism is going to be dead and it's going to be on the way to getting better, and this is the fastest thing you got. And number two is, because this organism is part of the normal flora, it needs an ongoing treatment plan. So probably the most common program involves giving the patient an azole orally. And people usually choose Nizorol because it's the cheapest, ketoconazole. And they give generic ketoconazole 200 milligrams, two tablets, one time, which is very good at killing this bug for about a month. And then you got to do something once a month. In Florida, people are more inclined, where this is a more resistant problem because of the humidity and stuff, to uh, perhaps use oral therapy monthly. Because the very rare 1 in 200,000 idiosyncratic, potentially fatal toxic hepatitis that occurs with azoles can occur after 18 to 20 tablets, that would generally tip you over towards having to check liver function tests, perhaps at six-month intervals or something like that. The other approach is to do the oral one time and then to do a monthly um, prophylaxis with selenium 2.5%. Selsin Blue, the over-the-counter shampoo, is 1.25%, which isn't strong enough. People put that stuff on every single which way that you can. There are people that do induce sweating, put it on when you're exercising, do this, leave it on for this long, do it in the shower, whatever. My thing that I was taught was to put it on at bedtime, uh, sleep in it overnight, and shower it off in the morning once a month. And you put it pretty much from your neck to your waist. But there are many ways to skin the cat. People use azoles topically. They use Nizorol shampoo. Um, you know, on and on and on. Are there comments or questions about tinea versicolor before we move on? No. Okay, let's move on then to dermatophytes. Now, the ideal way to, to diagnose a dermatophyte on glabrous skin, so skin other than, you know, um, uh, nails or, or hair or mucosa where these organisms don't go, is by doing a scraping and putting some KOH solution on the scraping and looking under the microscope. The KOH solution basically highlights the contrast uh, between these organisms and, uh, and, the, uh, and the surrounding epidermal cells. The main thing that an attending does to improve the yield is you go in, and it's kind of a cool, one of the cool things you get to do in my job, basically you get to sign your name a lot, but you also get to press on the cover slip, you know, and spread out the cells a little bit, and that makes it a lot easier to see. Um, and you get to explain that if it's from the toe webs, there's something called pseudo, it's, um, it's, it's a, a fake positive because the, the glistening intracellular substance on the thicker um, uh, stratum corneum in the, in the, um, um, on the feet kind of looks like hyphae. If you see the most positive KOH you've ever seen, it, it may not be uh, a real one. So what I like to tell the residents is you kind of focus up and you look under low power 
and then you focus up and down under higher power and see if you can see little organelles, you know, like these are, these are actually organisms, so they would have, you know, stuff in them like a nucleus. So you can see that sort of stuff, and sometimes you can see the little septi, and that makes you more confident that you're not dealing with just a fiber. If you do confirm the diagnosis, it makes it a lot better for the future, because then you really have established what's going on. So here we go through that anthropophilic, zoophilic, um, and geophilic again. Uh, I'm going to more comment on when this is relevant clinically as we go through the different clinical subtypes. All right. This one, um, yeah, I think I'm going to skip this one and go on to, well, let's see. Probably what I want to say on this one is, um, what I'd probably rather do is free associate a little bit, to be honest. Let me, let me talk about, about this. This would be, on the left, your classic untreated tinea corporis. The main feature of this, there are two things. One is the margination. Margination, sharp cutoff from the lesional skin to the normal skin. And the other is this, this kind of trailing rim of scale, but there are other dermatoses that have that, like lesions of subacucutaneous lupus, or lesions of erythema annulare centrifugum, or other annular erythemas. So one of the things that makes fungus like walk in the room when it's not had a lot of treatment on it, which unfortunately most people you're gonna see have put some treatment on it, which confuses it, even if it's a little bit of topical athlete's foot medicine they got over the counter, or if it's some, um, even hydrocortisone can change the appearance but sort of in an unaltered lesion, you often see these kind of rings of trailing scale. So within the main ring, there's sort of littler scaly trailing areas, and so you do a little scraping of that scale, and it's just loaded with hyphae, and you, you walk away confident. These kinds of infections almost always come from organisms that are geophilic or zoophilic, so there's almost always a fair amount of eczematous change, and when there's a fair amount of, of inflammation and immune reaction, they're just a heck of a lot easier to get rid of because your body's kind of helping you with it. So the most logical way to treat it is with a topical, over-the-counter, inexpensive azole, like uh, you know, clotrimazole, which is called Lotrimin. Tenactin is much less effective, so even though John Madden talks about fast-acting tenactin, it's not that fast-acting and it's, it's not that good. Um, most of these are not necessarily studied in tinea corporis, but they work better in tinea corporis than they do in tinea pettis, and we'll talk about why that is. Okay. Okay. Now, when you, when you move on and you talk about um, other kinds of dermatophytes, what I really want to talk about um, a little bit are the, before I get on to this one, I want to talk about the feet and the groin. There are three main organisms that cause um, tinea pettis, and they're the same ones that cause tinea unguium. So one of the things that, um, that we joke about a lot in dermatology are groin rashes, because people have a lot of psychological overlay about those kinds of things. And um, um, so they, they sometimes tell you a lot more history than you really need to know or want to know. <laughs> but uh, you kind of... <laughs> You check it out, and the main differential for most scaly, superficial groin eruptions is intertrigo versus tinea cruris. 
And so when you're trying to distinguish those two, tinea cruris doesn't affect the scrotum or the penis in a male. Um, and uh, that's very helpful because inner trigo, which is really diaper rash of the adult, inner trigo is an eczematous eruption that comes about because of friction in an occluded area, often an overweight patient, sometimes a diabetic patient. And then that eczematized eruption becomes colonized with candida. And so the treatments involve really some very mild corticosteroids and some anti-candidal therapies in order to break that cycle. Um, often when it affects the scrotum, there's a strong lichen simplex chronicus component to the eruption, and that can be, um, it's, it's referred, referred to uh, with sadness as the red bag syndrome. The reason I say with sadness is because it's a hard thing to treat. Uh, sometimes, in addition to being an intertriginous eruption, it's also an eruption that has a causalgia component. Patients who have uh, lower, lower back pain sometimes have um, respond well to Neurontin, to actually gabapentin, breaking the itch-scratch-itch cycle to actually reverse that problem. And I've had patients who've had that problem who were young, who had lacrosse injuries or other things that affected their back. But when you have the dermatophyte, the dermatophyte tends to spare the scrotum. It tends to have those sequential rings. But the other key thing, and I really emphasize this to the residents. Whenever you have an eczematous type eruption on the hands or in the groin, you always have to look on the feet. Because if it is a dermatophyte that's causing tinea monum that looks like hand eczema, whether it's two foot and one hand, there's this very peculiar immunologic uh, phenomenon where people can have tinea pettis on both of their feet and in their toenails and then they also get it, but they only get it on one hand, and it looks like hand eczema. So whenever you see somebody with one hand of hand eczema, um, always wonder if it's a fungus. But you should always look at people's feet, because the organism that causes, tin the, the three organisms that cause tinea monum and tinea cruris are the three organisms that cause tinea pettis. And all three of those organisms, T. rubrum, T. mentag, and E. flaccosum, that you don't really need to remember, but those three organisms, are all um, anthropophilic organisms. There is one variant of T. mentag, which is the, the, it's the uh, variety uh, granulare, which has, produces more inflammation and can mimic dishydrotic eczema on the feet. But the others make more of a powdery change. So the interesting thing about these organisms is when they get on the feet, they start out in the toe webs, and then they colonize and can produce a whole moccasin type of tinea pettis. But then, you know, and you don't need to go into a lot of thinking about how this might happen, but I guess, you know, people take their socks off, they touch their feet, they go to the bathroom, they touch their groin, and uh, they use their hands. So those are the three areas where these organisms like to spread. And so, in a way, if you're only treating the dermatophyte in the groin, you're really never going to get to the root of the problem, especially if they're one of 50% of men over age 50 who have this organism in their toenails. So if you don't eliminate the reservoir on their toenails, or at least get rid of it on their feet, they're just going to continually, continuously have the problem. And so I think that's one of the real, the two pearls for groin rashes is number one, clearly distinguish between tinea cruris um, and, uh, and inner trigo, because the inner eruptions need therapies with um, 
with mild corticosteroids as well as something to kill the yeast. And my preferred treatment is actually I like to use um, uh, class six or seven corticosteroids. And if they're not allergic to sulfide, I like to use sylvidine cream. Sylvidine cream is a burn cream, silver sulfidizing, that's very, very soothing. And it has excellent activity against yeast and bacteria. Sometimes if they have a lot of bacterial overgrowth, I like to have them use an antibacterial soap, like Cetaphil antibacterial soap as well. Um, but uh, if they do have toenail onychomycosis, we're going to talk about that a little bit. But I think it is worth at least discussing the possibility of taking um, oral lamisil. Now, the data with oral lamisil was that there was a, a winner in this category, which was lamisil. It was shown in a double-blind, multi-center, placebo-controlled study to be um, 34 or 5% better than the azole competitor, which was called Sporinox. When you get into a pharmaceutical situation where there's a, a winner and a loser, the loser wants to keep their market share. So there's often an obfuscation of the efficacy difference, which isn't so scary. But there's also a lot of fear messages about how the winner is going gonna, is gonna to kill you in some way. And uh, during the days of this big battle, which was probably 15 years ago, um, everyone came to believe that Lamisil would destroy your liver. Uh, the FDA, I think, played into this a little bit. When uh, the Azoles, Nizrol, was first released in 1979, there were six deaths the first year from this very rare 1 in 200,000 idiosyncratic toxic hepatitis. So their package insert for all the Azoles, which includes Boronox and, uh, and Diflucan, um, mentions this problem. Um, Lamisil is a completely different chemical. It's an allylamine, terbenafin is. Uh, and it shouldn't have that problem. But the FDA, maybe remembering that something in the same category caused this nightmare for them in the 70s, did something unusual. They said you need to check liver function tests once in the middle of treatment. So everybody did. Well, if you do random liver function tests on Wake Forest students who volunteer for clinical trials, you know, Wake wins some games every now and then. And uh, people go out, and they have a little drink, and they have a little Tylenol. And it can be a wart medicine on the bottom of your feet, and there's some people that have elevated liver function tests. Well, the FDA more recently reviewed 30 million cases of treatment with this drug, this oral drug, and they concluded that there were only 15 or so, uh, 10 or 15, that had significant elevations that were persistent and unexplained. There was even a publication of a case report in the New England Journal of somebody who supposedly died of Lamisil hepatitis, and those slides and cases were reviewed, and the, case, the, the single case had uh, alcoholic uh, hepatitis, had, had Lenex cirrhosis. So um, it's really, this, this liver function thing is way overstated. And there are patients who are diabetics especially who probably are better off not having a reservoir of fungus in their toenails. And there was even a French study that showed that people who um, are, are, uh, have cellulitis in their legs, have an 80-plus percent chance of having toenail onychomycosis, and people who are age-matched controls have a 20-some percent incidence, so that there's a belief that maybe through making cracks in the skin or whatever, that this chronic colonization of your toe webs and your toenails may predispose to other complications. So I like to think that if somebody's coming to doctors for a number of years for these groin eruptions and getting all sorts of different creams and they're miserable, you can offer them a 66% chance of growing out normal toenails if they take 90 days of Lamisil as long as they have two millimeters of normal nail. 
If the fungus goes all the way under the cuticle, some people do an extra month. Um, but the catch is 50% of people will get the fungus back after five years if you don't do anything. In theory, at least my belief, is that these people, these 50% of people who have toenail onychomycosis, have it because they have a cellular immune blind spot to this highly evolved human, path, human parasite. And in fact, Harvey Blank, who was a famous dermatologist at the University of Miami, did some experiments where he tried to inoculate himself and other volunteers with the fungus, and you couldn't do it. And so there has a lot to do in this organism with this highly evolved parasite, with this interaction between cellular immunity and, and this organism. And that's kind of intrigued me my whole career. There are other analogies. 20% of young kids have warts. Uh, which are also that, that viral infection is controlled by cellular immunity. When you get older, if you're exposed to a wart, it might get pin-sized and then go away because you've become uh, immune to it. So um, because you're not going to be able to alter that relationship in these patients, I think that they warrant ongoing prophylaxis, which could be using something like Lamisil spray powder in their toe webs, because remember, this organism starts in the toe webs, then you have trauma to your toenails, it gets in the toenails, you're touching your feet, it gets up in the groin, it gets on your hands. Those are the places that it tends to cause problems. So I think that the, the message then is that th this whole uh, tinea pettis, tinea cruris, and, uh, and tinea monum are all um, a setting of, of how does a, a really highly evolved human parasite uh, interact with the epidermis uh, and why it causes such chronic problems. One of the things that happens when you don't get a good diagnosis is this. This is called a Miyake's granuloma. The most common scenario is somebody gave this patient um, something like lotrazone, which is a combination of an antifungal, but it's a class two steroid, or just a, a, a relatively potent steroid. And it gets rid of the typical diagnostic features, and it allows the fungus, by causing some cellular immune impairment, to go down into the follicular epithelium. It doesn't invade into the dermis or into the subcutaneous tissue. It's a, it's a dermatophyte. Dermatophyte means it likes to live in the dead stratum corneum. But it can go into the hair follicle, and this can be very difficult to diagnose, and it doesn't tend to go away with just topical therapy. You need to use some oral therapy. My preferred oral therapy would be a short course of Lamisil. Very interestingly, even though this medicine is, a, is like a $4, $4 to $10 medicine, now per month at some um, honest um, pharmacy, pharmacies um, that don't mark it up to 100 or whatever or more. Um, there are insurers that say we're only going to use this for toenail fungus, which I think is bizarre. But it's something we're going to increasingly deal with as companies look at dermatology problems as being areas in which they can cut corners and cut expenses. We're going to, and, and, and we look, we're looked at as a specialty that is sensitive to hurdles. Hurdles mean things that take time. Uh, to get a form to fill out for somebody to take a $4 medicine is kind of offensive, but increasingly I'm finding that these are the kind of things we're going to have to put up with. Here's the tinea monum. Okay, now tinea fasciae can be really puzzling because these are almost always diagnosed as seborrheic dermatitis or contact dermatitis, and they're almost always treated with a corticosteroid. 
And uh, you really have to think about it. Sometimes these patients are even diagnosed as having lupus or something like that. So you have to think about fungus on the face. And remember those principles for when eczematous eruptions don't get better, what are the things you think about? Could it be psoriasis? Could it be uh, fungus? Could it be um, CDCL or some kind of proliferative thing? Um, could it be just that it's a contact superimposed, or could there be a neurodermatitis component? Now, the other area that's kind of interesting in terms of the immune system and a, and a relatively common problem is tinea capitis. For reasons that aren't really clearly understood, um, this, this infection is far more prevalent in African-American patients today um, than, um, than, than not. And we actually have been amazed that in our atopic dermatitis patients who are African-American, we're running about 90% that if you do a culture on their scalp, you find that they really have uh, trichophyton tonsurans. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. During the 50s and 60s, um, people caught tinea capitis from movie theater seats. The organism was uh, an organism called Microsporum odwini, funny name, <laughs> and it, it caused an infection on the outside of the hair. And you could screen for it with a woods light. So you'd screen a woods light, and this organism on the outside of the hair would cause a fluorescence. And so pediatricians all over America were screening for these things. And people put little um, tissue things, like on airplane seats and stuff, so that you wouldn't catch tinea capitis. Well, over the years, since I've never seen an airline change those little things on the seats, I don't even think they have them anymore. Now, and I think now movie theaters are more notorious for um, bed bugs than they are, especially in New York City, than they are for tinea capitis. This prevalence of this organism, which probably accounted for 90% of tinea capitis in the 50s, has been supplanted by this organism that came up from South America and Mexico called T. tonsurans, um, which lives inside the hair and causes almost no inflammation. It's just a little white powder on the scalp. It's so subtle and so difficult to get rid of. Yet, this infection then becomes colonized with bacteria, and it can produce a permanent scarring alopecia, which is very, very, very upsetting to families, and I think, therefore, is really something not to be missed, because it's so preventable. Well, how do you, how do you diagnose it? Again, you got to think about it. And then, rather than attacking a three-year-old with a, with a 15 blade, what, what um, one of our residents did, who's now a famous pediatric dermatologist in Houston, Beta Abair, when she was a resident um, in Texas when I was there, she wrote a paper of using um, a Q-tip, you know, one of those big wooden ones, sticking it in the sort of juicy part of the culture medium, and then just rubbing it across the scale world vigorously, and then putting the Q-tip in the, in the uh, auger, and it, it, it picks up scale and grows very nicely. So you're not subjecting the child to the same risk as feeling like you've got to attack them with a blade. Um, as I said, in our atopic, so you would have in the past said this is just atopic dermatitis of the scalp, we're running about 90% positive T. tonsurans cultures. T. tonsurans inside the hair, anthropophilic, highly evolved human parasite, almost no immune response. The 1% of tinea capitis is the kid takes their cat or their dog and they rub, the, rub it against their head or they rub their head into their cat and dog and they get a real inflammatory woods light positive kind of tinea capitis that's a lot easier to treat. 
Now, the way we treat tinea capitis is with Lamisil. Again, it's generic. Uh, we take, um, for uh, kids, we take half a tablet, and we usually, it takes four to six weeks to eradicate the infection. Griseofulvin, if you use the Harriet Lane dosing, is, is really dosed from the 50s for Microsporum odwini, so it's way underdosed for this highly evolved human parasite. And kids are on it for three to six months, and it still doesn't get better. And so the Lamisil, uh, for us, is the way to go. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't come as a liquid because it wasn't financially worthwhile, and now it's a generic. So the, I tell the mother to put it, or dad, to put it in a tablespoon and crush it with a teaspoon and put a little applesauce or something, whatever they, the kid will take, and do it uh, once a day for the four to six weeks, and then see them back and reculture. Um, if it is the inflammatory one, interestingly enough, Lamisil works great for all the dermatophytes, kind of a dermatophyte specialist, except one, and that's M. canis. And so those patients actually need griseofulvin. And so uh, it's kind of one of those situations, again, we're understanding a little bit about the immune response to these organisms actually has practical clinical value, much more important than memorizing the different organisms and stuff like that. It's just rem remembering those little pearls. Okay, and here's the hair on the inside and the outside. We don't really know to go into that. This is called favus, which is a horrible tinea capitis that's caused by an organism. To be honest, I've actually never seen um, uh, Schoenleni infections, but um, it's trichophyton Schoenleni. But um, you can see a picture that mimics this in patients that have tinea capitis that's become secondarily infected uh, with, um, uh, with uh, staph, and that can be a real... Um, challenge to treat as well, because you have to treat both the bacterial infection and the, um, uh, and the uh, dermatophyte. And we talked about the tinea pettis, and you can see when it looks more inflammatory, it's more likely to be this less common um, T. mentag variety granulare, and there you see the person with the hands and the feet, and you see the typical white. Now, just because somebody has white in their toe webs doesn't mean 100% for sure that they have a, a dermatophyte. It can also occur from erythrasma, in which case it fluoresces a coral color with woods light, or with even bacterial overgrowth. One of the ways to get rid of that is to have people, if they have a really deep kind of uh, little space between their toes, is to have them put a little peroxide on a Q-tip and uh, get down in there and get rid of the bacterial colonization, which is what makes it symptomatic, and then treat. All right. So this kind of, I think, reiterates stuff that we've already talked about. And we've already talked about toenail infections. What about documenting toenail infection? The reason it's so hard to get a positive culture out of a toenail is that the organism is probably proximal. It's kind of a distal tunneling dystrophy. It's munching down from the end of the toenail. So people want to say that anything on any kid's or adult's hands or feet is, is fungus. And the truth is, there's only one, I mean, you can get this superficial white onychomycosis that you're seeing in these couple pictures, but the classic presentation, just look at the nail head on, and if it's thick distal tunneling dystrophy, that's what dermatophytes do. You can confirm it by taking a, a deep nail clipping and having a PAS stain done, and that's probably positive about 80% of the time. So it's positive a little bit more than just doing a KOH from the crumbly stuff at the end of the nail. And it is worth documenting. One of the things that's confusing 
is that you might grow a whole bunch of other garbage out of that nail if you do a culture. Those organisms, in my opinion, are colonizers almost always. There may be a few organisms that we're not going to go into that um, are contaminants normally that can, in some settings, affect the toenail and attack the toenail. But I think oftentimes they're just kind of hanging around. Just like if you culture a leg ulcer, you get all sorts of disgusting stuff out. Unless there's tissue infection, you don't treat it. All right, so now let's move on. We talked about treatment. Let's move on to candidiasis. Candidiasis, that's a great picture there. Um, candidiasis often occurs in patients who have had their bowel flora altered by antibiotics, and so all the friendly bacteria that keep candida from overgrowing go away. It's also a huge problem in the mouth in babies, but it can also be a problem in the mouth in patients with, with mouth disease. And so I see lots of patients with pemphigus vulgaris, cicatricial pemphigoid, oral erosive lichen planus. If you don't get the candida off the inflammatory dermatosis, the patient's not going to get better because the candidiasis uh, that's colonized on top of that rash is kebnerizing by causing additional inf inflammation, additional spongiosis. One of the big frustrations is that there's not enough money. There are too many lawsuits and not enough money for companies to come up with some drugs we need. We need a new anti-candida drug. Diflucan is like 30 years old, you know, and uh, that's a problem because a lot of candida is resistant to diflucan. It used to take one dose and that would solve your problem. You could treat candidal esophagitis with weekly dosing times three. Now I get patients with oral erosive lichen planus who've been on prednisone and have candida all down their esophagus and in their mouth, and I just can't get rid of it. So candida is, is a problem. When it occurs in intertriginous sites, it's all, you've got to ask yourself, why is this candida growing here? You know, it's, it's often there because of a primary eczematous eruption, and it's often in patients that are a bit overweight and occurs more in the folds, but it does like to... You know, this photograph I think is useful more because it shows that after antibiotics and you get a change in flora, sometimes you get a lot of candida kind of taking over and coming out, and uh, it's kind of a lot to think about. But uh, you can use one of the nice things about candidal, about anti candle therapy is in addition to your actual azoles that you're using to, to kill candida, and, and diflucan would be the candida specialist, you can also use things like sylvidine if they're not allergic to sulfa. But you can use products that aren't absorbed, like myconazole and clotrimazole, which are in, my, in uh, Mycelex troches, is good for oral candidiasis. You dissolve one of those. It's, five, it's supposed to be five a day for five days, but you can really dissolve one daily just to keep the candida counts down, and they can swallow it, and it's not absorbed. Also, there's a feeling that sometimes you can impact the bowel flora with probiotics and stuff like that. I don't want to get into that in a big way. Sometimes, and this is a baby with what's called um, granuloma uh, gluteale infantum, but you can also see this in adults with pampers. As a matter of fact, I think this is a common thing, and sometimes it almost looks like sarcoidosis or something. You have these infiltrated annular lesions in the diaper area. Okay, now, I really felt that the main focus should be on the common thing, so we're going to go very quickly through the rest of this stuff. Chromoblastomycosis is an interesting organism. It's generally acquired by direct inoculation into the skin. It produces these really funky looking things. And sometimes if your immunity is impaired, you don't only get a superficial warty part, but you get a deep part that has actual um, 
uh, instead of just these copper penny um, yeast-like forms, you get these hyphal forms in the dermis. I've actually had some patients with localized chromoblastomycosis because it's very resistant to oral antifungals that I've, I've talked. You gotta have a plastic surgeon that's a little bit indebted to you because you send them some patients. So then they'll do something weird, uh, like cut out the chromoblastomycosis. And I have a patient I've been following for 25 years who I did that for 25 years ago. It's about this big an area. And it's perfect cure, so he hasn't had any recurrences. And this is just an indolent, kind of a locally inoculated uh, organism. This is a patient with what's called here Madura foot, but the current name is more eumycotic or actinomycotic mycetoma. Luckily, this isn't a problem in the United States. The actinomycotic one sometimes responds to antibiotics, but the um, eumycotic kind that's, that's often exotic fungal organisms can be extremely difficult to cure. This is another local inoculation one. Sporotrichosis, classically you get from poking your fingers with rose thorns or you know, going out in the woods or something. It's the definer of the sporotrichoid spread, so you get the inoculation here and then it, you get lesions up your arm from cutaneous inoculation. It's a hard organism to find under the microscope and because there's some other hard to find organisms like Mycobacterium marinum or other atypical mycobacteria, there's some patients who have this sporotrichoid spread where you really can't figure out for sure under the microscope if it's M. marinum or an atypical um, mycobacterium that was inoculated into the skin. Mycobacterium occurs in people with, um, that are cleaning out aquariums most commonly. And uh, it is, it's, it's pretty easy to treat uh, sporo. Um, you can use uh, 30 drops of SSKI three times a day when it's relatively localized and you don't have to go right to, you know, to oral antifungals or, or IV antifungals. Uh, okay, histoplasmosis, I mentioned mostly because there are people, this is one of the ones that you breathe into your lungs and it can sit there. You, if you live in the Ohio River Valley, you might have gotten some little patchy pulmonary infiltrate, little hyaluradenopathy. 10, 15 years ago, it sat there. All of a sudden, something happened. The number one activator would be prednisone. If you put somebody on long-term prednisone, or let alone prednisone and mycophenolate, or prednisone and imuran, or prednisone and methotrexate, you really need to do a chest x-ray at baseline, and you have to do a chest x-ray at six months, to make sure you haven't activated one of these infections. When you do activate it, it can show up as these um, mostly dermal, but they come up to the surface. It's kind of something that got, got into the skin by getting into the bloodstream now. Started in the lung, got into the bloodstream because you, this granulomatous that were walling off this infection got you know, suppressed and it, it got into the bloodstream and shows up um, as a hematogenous spread, and you have to biopsy both for routine histology with special, and then special stains, and then often our residents will send half the biopsy specimen to be ground up and cultured for AFB and AFB media, um, deep fungi and, and fungal media, and, um, and routine bacteria. <clears throat> Ideally, when you take the biopsy, you don't use bacteriostatic saline uh, to put the specimen in when you put it in like a serosputum cup and you ideally don't use bacteriostatic lidocaine with epinephrine, you use a little vial that's single-use vial that you break open so you don't kill the bug you're trying to culture. 
Blastomycosis can be inoculated into the skin. The classic is the patient that is a veterinarian. They performed an autopsy on a dog, and apparently pulmonary blasto is pretty common in dogs. Coccidioidomycosis out in California, same kind of thing. In Phoenix, I think from, from um, Humira and um, Remicade, the first year that those were used, there were something like 10 or 12 cases of not TB, but activated coxy, because um, those are good drugs at breaking up granulomas. It theoretically could happen with any TNF-alpha drug. Okay, and the last thing to talk about, very briefly, your immunosuppressed patient comes in, and they get these scary-looking things. Sometimes it's just a little spot that's got purpura in it, and you've got to biopsy it, and you can see some really scary organisms uh, that don't normally attack humans. They're normally just, they're just uh, contaminants, but when your immune system isn't working, they can get into your bloodstream and cause some really bad things. You can disseminate Canada, which is what the the red dot is on C, or you can disseminate some other aspergillus or nocardia or other scary organisms. So we do cultures. This is why a lot of leukemic patients are treated with um, IV amphotericin just when they come into the hospital with fevers and, and any kind of necrotizing skin lesion. They're just automatically prophylaxed for suspected candida or disseminated opportunistic organism. Okay, so those are the things I wanted to the points, main points I wanted to make. If anyone has questions, criticisms, or comments, just go ahead and maybe we can put the lights on. <laughs>